Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's guest, Denise Bradley Tyson. She'll share the important work being done through the Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund, an initiative inspired by her late husband, the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente. She'll also share how prosperity can help bridge health equity gaps. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I think compassion will drive change in terms of people being mindful of their communities and not putting on blinders to what's happening. Denise Bradley Tyson has had a varied career since graduating from Stanford and then Harvard Business School. She created the first black culture inspired show on the QVC and launched an online marketplace to celebrate African creatives. But in 2019, things shifted. Her husband, Bernard J. Tyson, passed away. He was the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, one of the largest healthcare organizations in the United States, as well as a board member with the American Heart Association. He also had an unflinching dedication to health equity. And when he passed, Denise took on a new challenge to work with the American Heart Association on a special fund, one that provides grants and low interest loans to social entrepreneurs and not-for-profits, providing both funding and technical expertise to help new projects grow, fighting health equity through entrepreneurship, prosperity, and grassroots efforts. She'll talk about how prosperity can lead to equality and how this experience has changed her as a leader. But first, she'll talk about her inspiration, Bernard. Bernard, he was truly an inspiration for me and remains my North Star in the work that I'm doing with the American Heart Association. He was such an authentic leader that he shattered barriers to affordable health care. He shined a light on mental well-being, and he shook up social systems that imperil health in communities of color and called out structural racism as a fundal barrier to health equity. And it's one of the reasons that I respected and loved him so much, because he was so fearless in his, his advocacy and used his platform as a change agent for good. And after his passing, there's a million ways that you could pay tribute to his example. Why was the perfect next step this impact fund? Can you tell us a little bit about um, your decision making and and sort of what led to that choice and, and the work that you could do through this sort of initiative? When you lose someone suddenly, I think it gives you pause and you think about honoring that person. And Bernard had such a strong voice. He's helped me understand why it's so important for me to continue the work that he so effectively led both within Kaiser and outside within the industry and within the community. I thought about him sharing his story about his personal family, medical history, taking stock of who we are and what makes us who we are. And in my case, my father died of lung cancer, leaving our mother to raise me and my four brothers. In fact, she lost one of her fingers working in a commercial kitchen. In addition, our mother, who remains my original Shiro, 
inherit her own family's um, predisposition to high blood pressure and diabetes. So the work of the American Heart Association, Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund is very, very, very personal for me. It's so easy for me to support the fund because it stands for who I personally am. I think everyone needs to think about using their talents and their voice to make a difference however they can. Being an agent for for good, as the late John Lewis said, in terms of making good trouble. To orient people, tell us about the Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund. What is its purpose and um, how is that purpose executed? Um, The American Heart Association Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund is really focused around changing social economic barriers to healthcare access, which includes food insecurity, housing insecurity, mental wellness. You know, when I I think about the American Heart Association, the the amazing work that they've been doing for so long, you know, I think what Bernard did was really bringing the head into that equation from the head to the heart in terms of the stress and pressures that one faces in their daily lives, particularly, I mean, even at the highest levels, whether you're a CEO or you're driving a bus in the community and just the ways in which that sort of manifests itself negatively impacts one's overall health. And the difference for those who don't have the financial resources is that they don't often have access to the help that they need to address those pressures or the issues that may result from those kinds of stresses. And so the fund is all about trying to level set, creating healthcare equity and giving access to affordable healthcare to those in the community by partnering with people in the communities who are coming up with solutions to address that in their own communities. And we've seen some brilliant sort of social entrepreneurs who we've been able to fund in those communities. They're on the ground and committed to serving the community. And like Bernard, they are authentic leaders in terms of their own space around addressing some of those socioeconomic barriers to having a healthier life. There are a range of projects that the fund is helping make possible. Can you take us through a few of them? In Chicago, for example, Liz Abuna is a founder and owner of 40 Acres Fresh Market, where she sells fresh, affordable produce and under-resourced community through pop-up markets. So our investments there have helped her to grow her business and open the door to additional funders while feeding the south side of Chicago during the pandemic. In the Chicago area, we invested in an organization of Black nurses who, when they're not doing their day jobs, are out in the community educating, engaging families in low-income areas about how to improve health and connecting them to health clinics. This group is incredibly inspiring to me. When you think about the stresses all healthcare workers are facing these days, and yet they're willing to do this on their own time to help families in their community, low-income communities, training to secure higher-paying jobs and technology that don't require a college degree. 
and Knowledge House helps with that as well, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Knowledge House? Knowledge House is a not-for-profit that we funded in New York, specifically in the Bronx. And it's a business that provides training for high-paying tech jobs that don't require a college degree, which is huge. Most of the people that we serve are people who are people of color and those from low-income communities. And the exciting thing about this project is that, or this program, Knowledge House, is that it's working. Um, Before the uh, participants in the program, their average income was $14,000. And after the Knowledge House training and securing a job, their income went up to, on average, $80,000, which is huge. I mean, it changes the entire trajectory of a family, including their long-term health, because we know how the stress that's created by not making enough money to make to, to make ends meet. And I think that's an interesting point uh, with the connection with jobs and economic growth and security and health equity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is that connection between prosperity and bridging health equity gaps? Health equity and income are very much tied. And I think we saw that in its starkest form during COVID, which is still existing. You know, for example, housing security is a fundamental starting point for health and for racial equity. And the in COVID exposed the inadequacies in our system of providing housing access and security for all. So having a job to be able not only to keep a roof over your head, but also to make sure that you have access to food are critical. And it also impacts one's ability to have access to health care. You know, as my um, amazing late husband, Bernard, always used to talk about is you know, his goal was to ensure that everyone was able to walk through the front door to get health care as opposed to going through the back door, which, you know, he called the emergency room. And for those who don't have income, you know, where you have to make a choice whether you go to the doctor or have fare to ride the bus to get to work or to pay your rent, um, it does really become a life or death decision. And you wait until you can't wait anymore until you, you know, have to go into the emergency room for care. So having job security, I think, is sort of fundamental to ensuring you at least have a chance at good health. Another investee of the fund is Lambda Chi Chi. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that and how it's also working to bridge these health equity gaps? I think all of our investees are such wonderful um, social entrepreneurs. Lambda Chi Chi is based in San Francisco, and it's an organization Black nurses who, when they're not working, are out in the community educating and engaging families. So they work in low-income areas and teach people about how to improve their health and also help connect them to health clinics where they can get medical assistance when needed. You know, those clinics that are based in their community or who often provide free care But again, one of the critical things that they do is to teach people sort of how to better take care of themselves in terms of monitoring what they eat, looking for the signs that might sort of be triggers for whether it's diabetes or 
the silent killers where you know you're under stress and you don't even know it, which can negatively impact your health. So I think they're doing great work and they are to be commended exponentially for me because you think about all the stress that all healthcare workers and particularly nurses who are really on the front line are doing just in doing their jobs and trying to take care of their own families for them to find time in their personal schedules to uh, help families and individuals in the community. We were so excited to be able to support Lambda Chi Chi. And in these communities in New York and in San Francisco, what happens in 10 years? Can you tell us a little bit about the before and after and how these communities will be changed? This one sort of brings up, what's the John Lennon song, you know, Imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that very much comes to mind when um, I think about that question, because in 10 years, I hope that more families are being fed and no one's having to worry about where their next meal is coming from or where they'll be sleeping that night. I hope that these uh, businesses that we're seeding are growing and can um, better serve, can, can serve more people in their communities, but also that some of them can be borrowed from and uh, replicated in other communities. I hope that more people are finding jobs, when I say not just jobs, but jobs with dignity that enable them to feed and house their families. And this was a dream that both Bernard and I shared, and um, I'm so happy to see that it's being realized in some communities already. And how can this work be scaled? So our focus is to provide grants and low-interest loans to social entrepreneurs and not-for-profits. And I think it's no secret that businesses and nonprofits led by people color receive a very small portion of venture capital funds and from private foundations. And the um, Bernard J. Tyson impact fund investments are often the first and largest institutional investment that these organizations have received. And working um, through our network of volunteers and also corporate partners, we try to facilitate even more funding connections for them. And just by virtue of them having been um, seed funded through the American Heart Association, Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund, it helps to validate their business model, which one, it gives them confidence to go out to raise money, but we go above and beyond because it's not just the money that we are investing in these organizations, but that also comes with an amazing amount of technical support where the investment team and our volunteers across the country are working with these organizations to ensure that their double bottom line business models, which, you know, I think, you know, most of these social entrepreneurs have is, um, you know, helping to look to make sure that their profit loss metric, as well as their social impact metric is being measured because all investors or donors want to see results in terms of the metrics. And so we are working to ensure that our investees are able to deliver those annual reports where they can demonstrate those metrics. And we've helped to get 19,000 people access to health care, 366,000 pounds of fresh produce 
were grown for areas with limited access to affordable and nutritious food. $1.4 million worth of fresh produce and healthy meals were purchased in former food deserts and food insecure communities. 322 people are living in stable housing now as a result of our programs. And even there's been a 3% recidivism rate across our portfolio programs compared to 45% national rate. So for me, you know, I would call what we're doing really true impact investing. And this is how communities are being transformed. It's sort of been important in terms of my healing journey and focusing on gratitude as opposed to the sadness of loss. And because I still miss him tremendously, but gratitude for the time that I had with him as a husband, but also as a life partner, the learnings that I um, was privileged enough to gain as a result of being so close to him. But it just brings up going back to the mental wellness component that regardless of where we sit, practicing mindfulness in terms of uh, our mental wellness is something that each and every one of us can embrace that doesn't necessarily require money to do so, whether it's breathing, whether it's taking time out. And sometimes it's hard in one's busy schedule just to sit and be still. And to get re-energized by just sort of letting go and focusing on how you want to affect change in your your life or little differences that you can make. And self-care is not about being selfish. It's about enabling us to be our best selves and also to support our loved ones and our community in the most effective way that we can. Because, you know, if we're not healthy, we can't do any of that. What is your advice to people listening to this conversation and looking to make change happen in areas like health equity? Gratitude is an internal thing, but I I think in terms of this being a call to action, certainly for those who have the financial capacity to look at the American Heart Association Bernard J. Tyson Impact Fund as a place where you know that your dollars are going towards their intended purpose. We're seeing that the need is greater than ever. People being aware of sort of social and socioeconomic inequities. So that's one way. But then I'd also say people using their voice as advocates, whether it's within their companies, within their communities, within their churches, to not only give their voice, but also their time and their expertise to become a volunteer, whether it's through the American Heart Association or other community organizations, to help those who are on the front line, focusing on those socioeconomic healthcare disparities that Bernard so passionately and fearlessly led during um, his time walking among us. You have driven a range of projects and initiatives in your life, but how have you changed as a leader? Rather than saying change, I would use the word evolve because at an age where you think about, again, your personal journey, which I think I shared a bit about, but it's sort of how can I leverage all of my experience and my relationships to be a change agent 
for good. And it's also a reminder. I mean, I, this was both Bernard and my second marriage. Bernard, he had had his own healthcare challenges and talked openly about having had open heart surgery that we really focused on life and living as opposed to death and dying. His uh, passing sort of gave me pause in terms of just thinking about take no day for granted. You know, I'm sure many of us have heard the expression, you know, tomorrow's not promised to any of us, whether we think we're in good health or not, that, you know, circumstances beyond our control sometimes take people out, that every day we're here, I think that we have the ability while we're sort of moving our own personal lives forward to make sure that we are not leaving anybody behind, making sure we're using part of our resources and our humanity to look around us, to either support directly by rolling up our sleeves in the community or by sharing some of our financial blessings to empower those who are in the trenches doing the work. What can other leaders learn from this approach of uh, leveraging seed investments and betting on prosperity? I'll start with a quote from my uh, husband. He always said, you know, don't ask for permission to help improve lives of the peoples and the communities you're pledged to serve, but instead march through the doors of red tape, make bold moves and usher in access. So I think that that's sort of my personal mantra, but having worked in the private sector for many years, I think others can learn by just the spirit of cooperation. And I think we are truly living in a sort of a connected system as we truly are a global village these days. And it's easy, I think, when you see it sometimes to become numb to it, but it's really important for us to to sort of lead with our, our hearts how we can make a difference in the communities that we have. Bernard and his daily route to work you know, at Kaiser Permanente would pass homeless encampments and you know people living on the side of the street that one day he actually walked through these encampments and talked to the people who are living there, and in some cases, help some of these individuals move from homelessness to temporary housing. I think, you know, compassion will drive change in terms of people being mindful of their communities and not putting on blinders to what's happening around them. It's one thing to listen, but then it's a whole nother thing to take it to the next level and ask, what can I do in terms of the action step. That was Denise Bradley Tyson. Thanks so much to her and thanks so much to you for listening. Find a transcript of this episode as well as transcripts from my colleagues' podcasts, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast at wef.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with editing by Jerry Johansson and studio production by Gareth Nolan. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.